Hello, everybody. You have reached Green Room on Air with your host, Raymundus Renatus, or as some people call me, Shitehead or Ray Renati. You can call me Ray, or you can call me Jay, or you can call me Johnny, or you can call me Sonny, but you don't have to call me Mr. Renati. Who's old enough to remember that guy? Ray Johnson Jr. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're under 50. Good for you. Think you're all cool being under 50 and me being old. That's fine. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here because today we have a very special guest. How special is this guest? Well, this guest is an award-winning actor, director, and playwright based in San Francisco. He's been on the show before. As an actor, he's worked at the American Conservatory Theater, the Denver Center Theater Company, Berkeley Repertory Theater, Theater Works, Cal Shakespeare Theater, SF Playhouse, African American Shakespeare Company, the Aurora, the Marin, the Magic, the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Folks, if you're not from San Francisco, I'm naming off all the most prestigious and the largest theater companies in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he's worked there many times. He's the principal actor and playwright at the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And his name is Michael Gene Sullivan, and you get to hear him today. He's very passionate, very smart, very funny, and he's on our show. He's also directed a bunch of stuff. He's directed shows at San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, Theater First, the African American Shakespeare Company, Street of Dreams Theater Company, and over a dozen shows at the San Francisco Mime Troupe. He was also the director of the all-woman, all-clown Circus Finelli from 1992 to 1999, which is a very cool thing. He was a contributing writer for Tony and the Obie Award-winning San Francisco Mime Troupe before being named the Mime Troupe's resident playwright in 2000. Gosh, that was 21 years ago. And he only looks like he's about 30. How does that happen? I don't know. He's also a resident playwright for the Playwrights Foundation. This is just, I mean, how, does, how does one person do all this? I mean, I can go on for another 20 minutes here. Uh, he's written all kinds of political dramas, musicals, satires. Folks, I think you get the picture. This guy, this guy is all that. And he's on our show today, Michael Gene Sullivan. The San Francisco Mime Troupe has a... Uh, a show, a show, that's right, a radio play. And we talked about it last year, and it's happening again, and it's called A Red Carol. It's Michael's take on A Christmas Carol, the famous play starring Scrooge and Bob Cratchit and, uh, and company. The Ghost of Christmas Future, The Ghost of Christmas Past, and all those ghosts. But A Red Carol takes a different spin because Michael is known for pushing the edge. And that's what he does with A Red Carol. 
and it's a lot of fun. I've listened to it, and you need to listen to it too, because you want to be cool like me. Anyway, how you doing? How you doing out there in radio land, in podcast land, in the land of the P, of the podcast, of the podcast? You listening to Joe Rogan, you listening to Mark Marin, you listening to, oh, I don't know, This American Life, and you're listening to me. That's amazing, isn't it? All three of you? Four, maybe? <laughs> hey, if you're listening to this, send me an email at greenroomonair at gmail.com. Just saying, just put in, I listened, just so I know you're out there. Because sometimes if I wonder, I wonder actually if I'm talking to the void. Am I talking to the void? That's a scary thought. To be just sitting here talking and you put this out and it just goes into the void. If you like this show, please tell your friends if you heard it before. If you haven't, listen to it and then tell your friends. And if you don't like it, tell your enemies. And tell them how great it is. And if you like it, tell your friends and tell them how great it is. You've been killing two birds with Uno Stono. We had some sad news this week. The legendary Stephen Sondheim passed away at the age of 91. I always like to call Stephen Sondheim our modern-day Shakespeare. Shakespeare created, arguably, the body of work a body of work un, unsurpassed in the theater world many, many years ago, three, four hundred years ago. I don't know. I don't want to do the math. That's lasted until to now, and we still see the genius of it, feel the genius of it, watch the genius of it, hear the genius of it. And I believe the same will be true of Stephen Sondheim as the years go by. He was able to take language spoken word, sung word, music, put them all together in a way that created meaning in ways that no other musical theater author has ever been able to do. There was everyone else and there was Stephen Sondheim. He had his own style. It resembled no one. And much of it was genius. One of my favorite shows, maybe my favorite show, if I think about it, my favorite musical is Sweeney Todd. There's Sunday in the Park with George. So many other things. So many great, great shows. And we lost him. Apparently he was in the middle of writing another show, which I assume will never be seen unless someone finishes it. So, Stephen Sondheim, if you're up there, listening. I love you, man. You have been a huge influence in my life and millions of others. God bless. All right. And on that note, let's just get right into this interview. This chat I had with the prolific Michael Gene Sullivan. I'm in a show they wanted me to be a little uh, unshaved. And so I've never been this unshaved in my life. So, weird. 
Yeah. Lena's trying to get used to it. Now, what's the show? Because I saw I saw an email with your picture on it. What show is it? I can't remember. Ah, uh, so while the mime troupe is doing Red Carol, yes, doing re, re, doing the recording, I am in the musical version of Twelfth Night. Ah, oh, right. Uh, yeah. Where's that? SF Playhouse. SF Playhouse. Yeah. yeah, and that's the um, it's the one that opened at a. Uh, at the uh, the public and New York Shakespeare Festival a few years ago. And it was so popular that they decided to do it again. And then COVID hit. And so this is like the West Coast premiere of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of fun. So good. Yeah, it looks like it looks like yeah. fun. Um, yeah, some oh, really beautiful it. music in it, too. Oh, good. And who are you playing? Toby Belch. Oh, how fun. What a great part. Yeah, and I was telling people that, you know, I've gone through. I played Sebastian the first time I did the show. Then the second time I did the show, I played Orsino. And so I'm just kind of slowly aging through the show. Yes, Toby Belch, yes. You know. The old drunk man. And eventually, if somebody (laughs) wants a little old fest day or something, I'll play that part. (laughs) Isn't it ridiculous how fast it goes? I mean, you're like, you're playing young parts, and then all of a sudden you're playing old parts. It's like, when did that happen? Yeah, well, the weird thing like, for me is that I spent so much of my time wanting to be a character actor. I was like, character actors have longer careers. You get to play all of these amazing things. There's that point, you know, when I was young and I wanted to play more character roles, knowing that, you know, longer career and more fun and all of that. And then uh, when you get to the point where you don't have a choice, it's a little like, oh, oh, good thing I'm prepared for this. I've been talking to actors who have only played ingenue and now they're hitting 30 and they're like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, start working on your accents. But it's fun. I I actually, I think I I might've played my last love interest role right before COVID in Mamma Mia. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was Sam. Yeah. Cause it's got, yeah, but it's a lot going on. Kind of a joke, yeah. Love interest thing, but I uh, mean, it's fun, and it's and there, but there aren't enough. There aren't enough plays written for people who are middle aged, right? To have to have, uh, if there are characters in there that are middle aged, frequently they're trying to be young. Uh, not always, but uh, it's like one of the things I've been dealing with is as a tenor. As I get older, more and more roles are just written for baritones because they assume you're not a tenor anymore. I know. I love um, it. Yeah. And I'm a tenor. So <laughs> the, the song, the big song that I have in this show, first day of rehearsal, I asked the uh, Dave Dabrowski, who is the musical director, I said, can I sing this song an octave higher? And he was like, can you? So I sang the whole song an octave up. And he was like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's a rare thing to hear. Can I sing it higher? Yeah, that's not something yeah. you really hear. It's usually, can I sing it lower? Yeah. Can I take this down, down, down? And I was like, no. And it's like, I can sing it down here. But I, and what I told him, I said, I can sing it down there, but I won't be having fun. Because I'll be thinking about it. The last few shows that I've done that if I've had to sing baritone, it's okay, but I'm not having any fun doing it. You know, whereas I'm, I'm singing the octave higher, it's 
fun. It is, it's exciting for me and it's fun and it's in the better point place in my voice. So I don't have to struggle in any way with it. You know, you what's know? so odd to me is like, like if two people heard us talking, which I hope someone does, like they would, no, they would <laughs> no way know that you're a tenor and I'm a baritone just from the way, you know, we have like the same, <laughs> almost the same voice quality speaking. But then if we sang for some yeah. strange reason, it's different. I I've never understood that. Right. It, it's yeah, the strangest I don't, thing. I don't to know. Me. I think it yeah, it's just like where you're talking. I mean, my voice is a little tired now because we just came out of doing our tech weekend. So I've been singing over and over again. But also, uh for years I was I was always like, even though I sing high, I was like working on trying to make my speaking voice a little lower because I felt like I always sounded like a cartoon character on helium. <laughs> uh, and no one's going to take me serious when I'm talking, you know, power to the people. You know, they're <laughs> like, yes, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mickey, for, for, for your contribution to the revolution. Elmo <laughs> says power so, to the people. <laughs> yeah, right. And so... Uh, so I did try to, it's like, okay, but when, as I get, when I get more excited, my voice just sits in higher and higher, which unfortunately is normally about politics yeah. and, or if I'm talking to somebody about a play I've written and like, well, tell us about the research. And as I talk about it and I get, my voice gets more and more excited. Uh, so it, it's a, it's an ongoing thing to make sure to be taken seriously as a tenor. Now, you're, the play happening at uh, the radio play, which is a, mm -hmm. it's a Christmas carol, sort of. What's it called? A Red Carol. A Red Carol. Now, did you do this last year? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we did Did we talk about year. it? I think we did. I believe so. Or I talked to somebody else, or was it you? I don't remember. Anyway. I don't remember either. I don't either. It's, the last year has really been a bit of a blur for me. Because despite all the stuff's going that all of the COVID and the shutdown and the, and the and the attempted coup and so many things going on, I've been really busy. Wow, so that's know? good. Uh, yeah, I uh, you know I had a, I I wrote a show like a year and a half ago that actually opened the season at SF Playhouse this year. Yes, and what was so that called? I saw that. I didn't get to see it though. Oh, too bad. It's really good. Uh, the Great Con. Oh, I can't believe I didn't um, go. I was going to go, and I don't know And uh, it did really well. It's going to open at San Diego Rep in March, and then somewhere in Chicago a year after that, or not a year after, a few months after that, and then there are other theaters around the country that want to produce it, and so it's being pitched all over the place. Wow. So I had that, and then working on the mime, with the mime troupe, doing, you know, a... Uh, Tales of the Resistance 2 with the sequel to our show last year, which was a lot of fun to do again and bringing in more actors that we hadn't worked with, like Francis Jew. He's a Broadway actor uh, and, and uh, wrote to me, Agba Biaka, who uh, is a member of the Mime Troupe, but he couldn't work on the show last time and he did this time. So it was really, that was a lot of fun. And then coming right out of that and going into the great con being in performance at SF Playhouse, like I said, and then going into Twelfth Night. So I've actually been always doing something through this period and then having a Red Carol, which uh, was a project that I'd been working on for a few years. And uh, we couldn't figure out, the Mind Troop couldn't have figured out how to afford to do it. Mm -hmm. So we were like, let's do it as a radio play. 
Right. And uh, yeah, and like I said, like Michael McShane plays Scrooge and I play Cratchit and Valina Brown's in it and all, you know, Lisa Jorge Garcia, all these different Mime Troop members. Um, and oh, and, and um, Wilma Bonet's in it uh, and uh, uh, Jerry and Monroe. We got, you know, really great actors that we couldn't always do park shows with. And, uh, and to put it together as something that we can have as a tradition, you know, the mime troupe can have it as a tradition, but also Christmas Carol is this great activist story. It is an activist story designed to change the world. And it has been taken and, 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 you know, uh, not civilized, but, but kind of um, domesticated by the super rich and by these huge theaters into a story that's supposed to make the audience feel better about themselves rather than challenged to question what it is about themselves that, that they are. How do they see the homeless? How do they see the less fortunate? How do they see people who are out of work? How do they see the powerless? Do they see them as fellow human beings striving to make their lives as best as they can? Or do they see them as somehow uh, that they failed themselves? They didn't try hard enough. They, they didn't go into school enough. They, they didn't, you know, their parents let them down. All of those things. I originally wrote it as a stage play and it still is a stage play. But what I wanted to do was write it from the working class perspective which a modern audience, I think, understands where most people have never read Christmas Carol is part of the problem. They've seen Scrooged, fine film, but they've seen all of the versions that really focus on Ebenezer Scrooge and not on the world he lives in. And that's what Dickens was writing about. In those days, uh, it was basically illegal to give money, to give charity just to beggars on the streets. Uh, you know, that was the world they were in. You're supposed to go to the poorhouse. You're supposed to go to the workhouse. You're supposed to go to debtor's prison. But you're not supposed to give money to poor people because it just encourages them to be, to be starving, I guess, is the idea. Um, and most versions of Christmas Carol that are staged will show they'll always have some beggar children running around on the stage somewhere. And they'll always have some well-off English people giving them money, which is a lie. Uh, they'll have everybody, you know, who is what the English call middle class, basically kind and generous and everyone's good except for Scrooge. If only Scrooge would change, everything would be better. But what Dickens was talking about really was that the whole society needed to change. Scrooge is an example, not an individual. And so my adaptation is much closer to what Dickens intended than what a group of rich subscribers at a theater want to see. They're not, they're seeing the, the you know, uh, like I said, the version that's, that's had all of the heart and soul and pain ripped out of it. It all becomes about whether or not Tiny Tim gets saved, you know, and not all of the starving children who died in London during the winters, all of the kids who were abandoned. Uh, was it one out of every 10? I think, Funerals in London in that period were uh, just abandoned, starving children. When we see Dick Christmas Carol and you see and you know it's snowing and these kids are wearing rags and they're singing Christmas carols and they're always, che they're always cheerful. Those children 
on the streets of London or Birmingham or Manchester or wherever in the world that are singing songs on the streets in the winter wearing rags aren't happy. They're not cheerful. They're singing for the few pennies that might keep them from dying that night. That's the world that he lived in and the world that we live in now, you know, with homeless and abandoned children living in alleys, you know, and, and, and they're just bodies in the snow the next day. And what do we do to change not just the individual life of any suffering child, but to change society that makes that okay, that makes that acceptable? And what Christmas Carol has been made into is a show to not change the society, but like I said, to make the audience feel a little better about themselves. At least they're not as bad as Scrooge. Yeah. And it's a disservice to the story. I mean, I talked to so many people that say they love Christmas Carol, but they've never read the book. It's not that long. It's a novella, (laughs) you know? Uh, well, so, all these theaters, uh, they don't, you know, it's just tradition and they, and people are afraid to do things that might anger their subscribers or keep people away and lose money and yeah, go out of business and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's a cash when, cow. When ACT it was doing the show Huge before, uh, and I was doing it on a regular basis, Who's and it? they said it was like a quarter of the money they made every year. Did you say ACT? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I was in it at ACT for years. Yes. Um, I, I a remember quarter of their you. income yeah. was, was just off of Christmas Carol. So they weren't going to piss anybody off. Are they doing it anymore? Uh, um, they're not doing it this year because they're not really opening until January because uh, of COVID restrictions on a big house like that. Like we're doing the show at, at SF Playhouse, and SF Playhouse has all of these. Pro- COVID protocols in place to make sure the audience feels safe. You have to be masked. You have to have proof of vaccine. You have proof of vaccination. You also, if you buy a seat, the two seats on either side of you are left empty. So they're doing all this stuff to make sure that the audience is safe as a playhouse. ACT has a huge house. And so they're still trying to work out their protocols. So they decided to just not do a Christmas show. Uh, you know, understandable. I don't know what they'll do in the future, if they will continue to do that show or a different show. Instead, there's another big Christmas carol coming from Broadway this year. Uh, And I have some friends in it. And yay, I'm glad they're employed. But is the show a challenge to change the world? Like uh, the story is the Dickens intended, or is it just to make, give people something to do before they go shopping for crap they don't need or presents (laughs) for people they don't really like? (laughs) Yes. That's why I don't really like Christmas myself. I mean, it's, I I don't, when I was a kid, I had fun, but now it's like, it's just like a, it's just a, a big way to spend money and yeah get stressed yes and it comes and, and, every and the thing year is for me, yeah it's just it becomes about it's because it's become about just about consumerism and it's not that in christmas carol it's not all about the baby jesus in the book either it's supposed to be before dickens writes a christmas carol christmas is just a minor holiday it's just a thing that happens. It's like, eh, we're home. It's snowing outside. It's cold. Let's all stay in. Giving presents wasn't a big deal. You know, it was just a time to have kind of a dinner with your family because it's cold out. And, and uh, but it wasn't um, this major event either in terms of 
the uh, presents giving or or the, just the commercialization of it. it doesn't happen t- until after World War II, really. Uh, and, you know, the, the post-war economic boom that happens in the United States. And it happens here because everybody else had their factories bombed in World War II. So people had to buy stuff from the United States. I was just going to say that because I've spent a number of Christmases in France now because my wife is French. And it's very different there. Uh, it's more like Thanksgiving, I would say. Uh, you give gifts, but you give one or like one or two gifts to maybe a two max, and it's only to your like most immediate family, you know. And it's nothing. It's never anything expensive. It's never anything, you know, outlandish ever. No one expects anything ridiculous. It's it's just so much less pressure. And so much more about yeah, just less being pressure, getting less, together and yeah, it's, it's more not like the driver of the economy. No, definitely it's a, is not. No, family get together. Here it is, our driver. And so, yeah, 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 and it is very much the driver for our economy for all of these stores. So not ha- being able to go out shopping last year, there in San Francisco, going downtown, there are all these stores that have been closed since last Christmas because they relied on the Christmas money. Um. And, and it's unfortunate to have a society that's based on just on consumption and not on creation, you know, because, um, oh, we've got to support these stores. But are the workers that are making the things, are they doing better because of the things that are made? Are they, you know, uh, aren't there other things we could be making? I would rather not have Christmas presents and have us just make better solar panels, you know, things like that. Um well, but, I, I'm really looking forward to when you guys can go outside again and do your shows. Uh, I mean, I love the radio plays. I've really enjoyed listening to them. But I think I think your I think the you guys uh, mime troupe makes its biggest impact when it's live outside in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, I don't yeah, know. when we can do that, and hopefully, you know, I've got to start thinking about what the next show is going to be because there's so much stuff next year's of midterm elections, but uh, climate change is still going to be an is going to be an increasing issue, and yeah, and dealing with um, the repercussions of uh, of January sixth and the the attempted coup and what does and doesn't happen because of that who does and doesn't go to jail what's going there's still all of these the investigation is continuing more people are being subpoenaed what's going to happen in the next step of the de-evolution of the united states and not the the de-evolution i mean our country as an empire is coming in for a landing just like every other empire in history from the Mayans to the to you know to the Romans to the British to the French you know to uh, uh, Mali, every empire has its you know ascendants and descendants, and so we are in that period with the United States. And the question is, how are we going to land? And I think that's where a lot of the panic, people who can't accept that, people who are freaking out because of it freaking out at the idea that the United States is really just another country. Um, and that, you know, how much about uh, Bruce Barthol, who was with the mind troop for a, for 30 something years, he always wanted to do a show about the fall of Rome. And, uh, and I was always tempted because, you know, I'm a, I was a history major, but at the same time, I was like, uh, modern American audience probably knows so little about Rome that it would be, 
difficult for us to give enough information, you know, for the people who would understand the show would already understand it. They'd already get it. I wonder we now reach because out to people who don't. There have been some uh, successful TV series that have pretty much uh, yeah. shown a close history, a, a fairly accurate. They've shown history some from... stuff, but but like when well, there was um, Rome, I Claudius was on. Yeah, yeah, but but some of them have shown more of the ugly side, and some of them have basically been a bunch of models at war with each other. Um, and I wasn't, so I wasn't thrilled with Rome as, again, as a, somebody who's studying history. And it was like, it was more complex about that, but than that, but also so often you, when you think about, like, when you think about the United States as a modern empire and knowing that the vast majority of people are just working class folks, the vast majority of people are, are working class and, and a big chunk of them are, what are they, it's like a $500 bill would put them in debt. They were struggling if an emergency, medical emergency or something like that happened. Most people are really paycheck to paycheck, maybe maybe a, uh, two weeks, it used to be a month, that's like two weeks off. But, and so you've got to assume that if that's the case in the United States, it was probably the case, something similar to that in Rome, only there was a huge, also a slave class of folks. But everything you see about Rome is always about the rich people. Oh, they might put a poor, a working class story in there. They might put, oh, we're going to talk about Spartacus for a hot minute here. But most of it is going to be about, you know, Caesar and Caesar Augustus and, you know, Sulla and all of the, the wealthy. Our history that we are currently living in, the history that we see is frequently centered on those few very rich and powerful people. And what it takes to be a leader isn't to direct your society in a direction. It's seeing the direction the society is going to go and run and get in front of it and go this way. So it behooves us to understand ourselves and history to study this part, to study the masses, to study the people, to study the culture and why they made certain decisions and why they allowed certain leaders in control. It's like it's pointless to study Trump. He's barely a symptom. It's everything else. Why did people vote for him? Why did working class people vote for a billionaire who showed open disdain for them and think he was going to be on their side? It wasn't about that. It was about all of this other stuff. And, and, uh, uh, and so when you're studying empires, you have to do the best you can, not to just study the person at the top. And that's what most television shows about Rome or ancient Greece or the British Empire or whatever. Um, you know, that's what they show. They show the kings and the queens and the well, dukes. And that's what we learn the... in history class, too. I mean, we don't really right. learn much about the, the working class and the people. Although I find that right. so interesting when I do get tidbits of it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know. Right. And yeah. that history exists normally, but a lot of times it's been hidden in some fashion or other. It's like the early the labor movement in the United States that they don't really teach in school, but it's documented. A choice is made. And that know? is part of your the idea your Red that you Carol follow. Too. I mean, you yeah. Do, you talk and in Red Carol, one of the things that I do is there are points where there are things that people take for granted 
when they see Christmas Carol normally. Like there's a jolly scene where and as people chuckle their butts off uh, when Scrooge is talking to uh, uh, two charitable folk who come into his office and ask for money for the poor. And Scrooge says, well, uh, well uh, have the workhouses closed? Is the treadmill still in operation? What about all of these things? And they say, oh, they, they, they are. And he goes, good, I thought something had happened to stop them in their useful purpose. And the audience goes, ooh, he's bad. They don't even know, most of the audience, what the poor laws and the treadmill you know, this treadmill, imagine being tied not to a treadmill to lose weight, but to a giant wheel that has steps on it. And it's just going to keep turning. And you're just endlessly climbing yeah. that for like 12 hours. Well, and you're to a grind. kid. Yeah, and you're a kid. Um, <laughs> things like that. And, and it wasn't about making something. Some of them said, you know, well, we should, we should put like corn in there to have them grind it into meal. But most of the time it was just rocks. It was just a difficult, pointless task. Um, so when you think about your children doing that, because you couldn't pay your debts, you know, you don't get to declare bankruptcy. Instead, your kids are taken to a workhouse and, and put on a treadmill. Um, and the poor laws that make it, like I said, virtually illegal to give money to the poor or destitute or unfortunate. Those are the things that in my version, I have the actors stop and just talk directly to the audience in both the stage version and the radio version. And it's funny and it's got music in it and everything, but it also has these, these very important moments to say, this is what the world was like. And this is what the world is kind of becoming again, if we don't do something about it. So, you know, the, it's very mime troopy and that kind of <sighs> it, making the world a better place is, is a constant joyful task, but it's something, and it's something we all have to, uh, put our backs into so so what do you think we can do about the homeless problem here in california in our or in our big well, cities i mean the thing is like i was just talking to my wife about this okay so we've got this ridiculous rent situation in san francisco and there's all the lies that we've been told about why rent is so high in san francisco oh it's isn't it the reason rent is so high in san francisco is because we became a suburb of silicon valley we became a suburb of Silicon Valley in large part because of the zoning regulations in Silicon Valley that do not allow enough dense housing, like condos and apartment buildings and all of that stuff, because it's still zoned as if it were like orchards and, and industrial parks and housing, just homes for like Stanford retired professors and stuff. So, the people that work at Facebook and Apple and HP and all those places, they would prefer to live down there near their job. Every study shows they would prefer to live down there, but there's no housing where they can get into where the nearest place that has dense housing is San Francisco. After that, it's Oakland, but it's not even San Jose. San Jose still has very, I mean, you know San Jose. It's a lot of individual homes and not enough apartment buildings, not enough condo buildings. So, People didn't move up here because they love San Francisco. They don't even get to spend much time up here. They're always commuting back down all the way down to, you know, Saratoga or wherever to go to, you know, Facebook and HP and all of these places. So the actual reason for it is, is different than what we think. And if the zoning would change there, affordable ho housing would be more affordable in San Francisco and the house and the homeless situation would be different. Over 75% of the people who are homeless in San Francisco 
used to pay rent in San Francisco. They weren't born homeless. They didn't parachute in. They're not aliens. They're from here. You know, they had jobs and stuff, and some of them still have jobs, but those jobs do not pay them enough to be able to afford to live in this city anymore. That's ridiculous. Because of uh, um, rapacious and frequently landlords who booted them out, there's also a lot of um, a land banking that happens in San Francisco. People from overseas that will buy a house and just let it sit empty as a tax break for them from the it's an American investment they're losing money on mm -hmm. so they have a less of a tax burden they can they shift their money here their own country and yeah. they write it off yeah. and so there are a lot of all of these other things and but what happens is the homeless get blamed yeah it's always oh well you're this is a problem it's like it's like what people would say about the Middle East yeah. all those years they go oh, the Middle East it's a morass it's impossible to solve it's not that hard um yeah. it's like you gotta have to give land for peace that's it. It's just land for peace. If exactly. you take that out of the equation, then it's hard. But that's the solution. Yes, it uh, is. Sovereign land, yes. sovereignty and land. And land and that's worth San Francisco. <laughs> right. Something with a port. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's why God, eh, don't get me started. No, no, but I know. That's a whole hard. other subject. Yeah. yeah. But all uh, other subject. But yeah, housing in San Francisco would be a complete, and Oakland and Alameda uh, would be completely different if the places that had this high density of mm -hmm. workers had high density of housing. Now, I live- Cisco I, yeah. it used to have 30,000 people living down there, uh, working down there, but they couldn't get housing. I mean, all those companies, it's tens of thousands of workers. Anyway, you were saying? No, 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 you're right. I know. Um, I, li I live in Palo Alto, and I drive mm -hmm. kids to school as a job early in the morning in, in East Palo Alto, and there are not enough schools there, so they have to go over to Redwood City to go to school. But um, they are building some condos and apartments and stuff in East Menlo Park and has yeah they are starting to but, and in but redwood city yeah and redwood city um but it's not enough i mean it's just a small number no. uh I, it's a very small number and small, they're also and like can, the ones in redwood city in a lot of places they're right next to the freeway yes they are because it's because they didn't actually change much of the zoning they're yeah. like we can put this right next to the freeway because um it needs you know, to be railroad tracks or whatever so they're incredibly loud yeah, you know, people move in there, and there are trains and and uh, I know. and freeway noise and traffic and trucks going by That's all the time. Horrible. They, they try to put up retaining yeah, walls and, to block the noise, but it doesn't totally work. Right, but if those places like like when Oracle uh, left their their like headquarters down there, you know, those buildings when whenever those big corporations decide to move to Texas because they are you know they like fascism or something. Um, Whenever they decide to move, those buildings should just be turned into housing. Yes, and you know, you know I'll tell you there there are there's so much land there that's not being used. A lot of it is parking lots. Um, our yeah, parking lot. I mean, I drive by it every day. Uh, mm -hmm. I and and then I'm telling you the whole I I'm a progressive Democrat, I guess you would say, but I do get a little disgusted with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For instance, mm -hmm. in Palo Alto. Uh, they wanted to build, it was just a small area of like low cost housing for like retired professors and stuff like that. And people, mm -hmm. they voted it down. 
because they didn't want like the wrong elements moving in for safety reasons and stuff. How would uh, not professors? Like, it was professors supposed to be for, like be for professors, but also anybody else who needed. They, they had room yeah. for like just you know the common man to come in and for right, a small number folks. of these units. Well, see, and they were afraid of that happening, is, and that's just disgusted mm -hmm. me. Um, also, Google wanted to uh, propose to the city of Mountain View this whole thing where they were going to build like they were going to like build these house these apartments and townhouses and stuff. And mm -hmm. you know, Mountain View wants control over it, and so they didn't let them do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's the same thing. Like like you're saying in Palo Alto, all of those places where they're they are what would be technically, I think, reactionaries. Now, the thing about saying, like, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I'm a progressive. And it's like, uh, they, they mean social progressive. They mean that they don't think you should be fired because you're black. They don't think that you should be hounded out of your housing because you're gay. They are social progressives. They are not economic progressives. And progressivism, for most of its history in the United States, was about economic, uh, about economic progressivism. How is this helping the working class? In the 60s and 70s, it got split with the civil rights movement into, oh, I can say I'm a progressive because I don't think black people should get lynched anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it's like the people who, as a black man, you know, you see the person who's got their uh, Black Lives Matter sticker on their on their car. But as you walk by, they lock the door. Right. You know, <laughs> right. What is that called? Virtue uh, signaling. Isn't that what they call it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's I, what I it hate is. That. God, it and makes so, me sick. Oh, it just gets right. me so I don't think angry. It really makes anybody happy. Oh, I mean, but, but even Nazis hate that. But the people who are doing it don't even know they're doing it. Or you know, right. it's like it's like it's like here you you virtue signal all all day long. You live in Palo Alto, and then when you you have the opportunity to support some affordable housing, you say, "Oh no, not in my backyard." Right. Somebody else disgusting. should do that. That yeah. should happen somewhere else. And so the idea that you can have anything at uh, and this is, you know, uh, it's a human thing, but it's also very American that you get something for free mm -hmm. that somehow you can have change, but it will cost you nothing. Right. It's like, I'm worried about climate change, but I'm still going to buy an SUV that I will drive by myself, <laughs> like a, right next to a train to go back and forth in case I ever have to transport a soccer team. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's like, what's that is like that argument, the whole like, like, uh, I mean, uh, or people are like, well, what if society falls apart? Well, if society falls apart, you won't be able to get gas. Yeah. So having a SUV is not going to help you. Why would you buy a vehicle that you that uh, I mean, this is this was a real argument that people had to say, OK, well, my daughter's on the soccer team and every every you know, few months, it's my responsibility in the in the set of families to transport the entire team somewhere. Fine. On that day, you rent a car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what you would do. That's what your grandparents would have done if they had to do it. They would have wasted money buying a ridiculous tank of a of a vehicle to drive it a mile to go to rallies or or you know safeway and every my grandparents day. only had because one car in a few months yeah you just just freaking have a car you buy one car There's and no... you share it yeah how about that i use i used city car share for years until they got 
privatized. They were a nonprofit organization and they got privatized and killed because they wanted to change it into a different kind of money making proposition, which was just horrible. Um, that it, it's still around. Um, but yeah, car sharing, having a vehicle that's appropriate. When can you ride a bike? If you need a car, how big does your car have to be? Can And a lot of people are still going to be like, oh, I don't want to get an electric car because what if I decide I need to drive across the country? Is that going to realistically come up? Why don't you take the train? And if you really have to drive, rent a car. Just rent one. Well, you know what I think too is I think that the government should mandate somehow or somehow encourage these companies to manufacture affordable electric cars and then mm -hmm. require that that's what we do. Uh, yeah. Because right now, a decent electric car is just too expensive for most people. Yes. And, yeah. and, and th we have to do this. And so why are they gave the same subsidies that we give to the oil companies and yeah. to the car co and to the, uh, the the oil industry to the electronic car industry, the price would come down. Um, but we have, you know, our country is run by oil folks and and uh, they see that, you know, I remember back when Clinton was president and um, the oil industry had to admit that they had gotten billions of dollars from the government to research alternative energy and all they had done was use that money to look for more oil and all of those about the economic progressives were like of course that's what they were going to do you know how much money you'd have to give to somebody for them to put themselves out of business of anybody who believed that that was any but there are all of these politicians who were like well we're thinking about the future you're thinking about your future you're thinking about what's the job you're going to have when you get out of Congress. That's all you're focused on. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. And there is a lot, there are so many things and it can feel so overwhelming. And so part of the job for the mime troop is to be able to try to take these things and put them into bite-sized chunks and also try to whisk away all of the, all of the lies and all of the confusion and all of the thwack factor that makes it seem like only experts can deal with this. Uh, as a friend of mine always says, you know, if, if capitalism is so great and capitalists have been in charge, why doesn't anything work? Um, you know, to just bring up points like that and go, this is really what it comes down to. If policing is such a big deal and we have to give more money to the police, why is it the more money we give to the police, the less safe we feel? Um, especially me. Uh, there are so many issues that have been focused in the wrong way and put into seen through a kind of a kaleidoscope to confuse us, to make us feel as the working class that we can't handle these things mentally and intellectually. And that's just a lie. We need to, to uh, always feel positive that if we were in charge, we could change things for the better for ourselves and everyone else. So we just have to get in charge. And we have to have fun doing it. That's one of the things where people say, oh, man, you're part of the struggle. And I'm like, no, I'm part of the joyous uh, march to inevitable victory. That's how you got to think of it. No, I agree. You have to you have to stay positive And. You have to do whatever you can to foster change. Yeah.
Uh, and that's and what not you let people do. like you're saying virtue signal and and uh, uh, I hate using that term, but I just heard it. You know, I heard it a lot lately because I was listening to something. It's, I know it's a cliche term, but it, it's kind of descriptive. It gets overused, yeah. but it does kind of describe a lot of what, especially. Well, I'm not going to say that because I don't know if it's true. I was going to say especially white people, but I don't know if that's true. I just just pe- I not white. It is. I, I, because... Well, okay. Yeah, no, no. Okay, so I was thinking about this. Uh, like, let's say, let's say, not, I, not say white people, say whatever the dominant culture is. That's what I was going to say. Dominant and economically uh, most fortunate. So, yes. Um, it, that sure happens China, to mostly be white people. people. Say that. What's yeah. that? I, I'm sure in China there are a great many comfortable people yeah. who, are, who will indicate that they're very concerned about the housing crisis that's happening in China now. Exactly. That's what I meant. It's like, it's like, uh, yeah. It's like like the dominant economic majority, which yeah. happens to mostly be white people. I mean, because I'm country. trying to in, yeah. in my own life, I I am trying to not. I I think that it's important that we start like actually getting more particular about who it is that, or what groups, not personally because mm-hmm. it's groups that are causing the problems, whether consciously or unconsciously. If we just keep saying white and black. Brown, you know, yeah, people of color, white people. We're just all we're gonna do is just like start hating each other for no reason. Right. It's just the people who have the power, and it's it's like regardless of their race. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I that's what it, I. Think. I mean, when I the way I was raised, it was like they were like, well, what's more important? My parents would say race or class, and it was like both. They are inextricably linked. Um, and while uh, the wealthy and powerful, because they are wealthy and powerful have you know a huge say and and are do everything they can to keep themselves in power most of them do everything they can to kind of society is drifting and moving and evolving and then they want to make it stop at the point where they are the most powerful most people that and it's understandable to a large extent it just so happens that in this country not a lot of black people in that position no not Not many native americans at all no no native americans right so (laughs) so it's not that it's it's not an either or thing, but it's a mainly thing. Yeah. I, I and, know, that, yeah. How, and but also how that psychology drifts down to people and how they control a white working class by telling them that the most important and most valuable thing they have, an average white working class person, isn't their rights. It isn't their 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 their, uh, you know, um, the sense of uh, society, owning the society because they are in a democracy that the single most valuable possession white working class people are told they have is skin color. Yes. And they will and give so up wrong. everything else for that. That's brainwashing. Yes, it is. Just like men are told that the most important thing we have is our maleness. Yes. You know, and, anything, and, and so that we, whatever it is, we have to hold on to and protect that, you know, it's like somebody's coming to take it, you know, nobody's coming to take that from us, but we're still told that that's the most important thing. And that there's an assault on maleness. No, there isn't. There's a huge counterattack that, that men are perpetrating upon people who aren't identified as men. But besides that, we're not under assault as a psychologically, you know, uh, but uh, still, if they can tell you that the thing that is about you that that is intrinsic to you is under threat, 
you will hopefully be so distracted that you won't notice that your corporate, your the corporation is selling the factory and moving it overseas, or that you're losing this, that your, you know, your housing is going getting ridiculous, that your healthcare system is falling apart. Yeah. But at least you're still white. You know. Exactly. I think that. I think that. Th- like you, you watch, you watch any of these. Sh- you know, watch. You watch CNN. You watch Fox News. You watch. All they're trying to do is create more and more and more dissension. And it's always about race, gender. And it's because these rich, these billionaires own these companies and they know that's what's going to bring them the most money. Right. And it's going to cause the most hatred. And if you can con- get your get your enemy, whether economic or geographical, to fight amongst themselves, they're not looking at you. Exactly. You know, and they're just like, even if they're whatever it is, they want the system, like I said, to stay the same so that their advantageous position is maintained. And the way to do that is that you can keep the working class fighting amongst themselves. Yes, and if you make the, if you allow if you if you brainwash white working class people, like you say, to believe that their whiteness is the thing that must be held on to, mm-hmm. you have accomplished a lot because right, you have accomplished you, because a huge in their eyes, we're all the sa- we're all the rabble, right? We're all rabble. I mean, and uh, if we re- if everyone just would realize that, I swear, we would be so powerful. Yes, as a but it's it's so much to go against. It I is know. so much to convince just just convincing people they're in the working class is yeah. so hard that there's no such thing as a middle class. Technically, it has no definition. Working class is if you work for a living and you rely on that money for your um, sense of for, to pay things. Basically, if you weren't working, you'd be broke. So you can have people who are very wealthy and they have a job, but they're not working class because if they lost the job, they'd still be rich. They wouldn't be homeless. They'd still have food. They'd still be able to live out their lives. So your working class, if you need the income and your owning class, if you uh, inherited money or if you've reached a point where you no longer need the income and you're relying on uh, your investments or interest or businesses that you uh, own a big chunk of or all of. You can live off That's of it. passive income. Right. But but the, the capitalists in this country managed to convince enough people in the working class that they were this thing called middle class. Which is getting smaller and smaller. If it ever Which has no definition. Yeah, right. right. It has, and that's the thing. Yeah, I what is always middle tell class? people, what do you think it means? Yeah. And they'll go, oh, if you, if you, if you, if you don't have to work with your hands, you don't get dirty. <laughs> that's working class. And I go, plumbers make a lot of money. Yeah. Wouldn't they be middle class then? You know. What about elevator people, repair people? They make tons of money. They take but and there are people who work in Silicon Valley, who are not making much money at all. Right. You know, there are there are uh, uh, people receptionists. who uh, receptionists, but also like adjunct professors. Exactly. Who yes. are home, literally homeless. You're right. You know, wouldn't an adjunct professor be middle class by that? By their. Yeah. It's like what there. Th- that's the thing is there is no real definition. If you're an adjunct and, professor at a, like a community college like De Anza, you're getting you get you're getting paid minimum wage. N- not at a community college. Just anywhere regular, really there was an article in the guardian maybe three weeks ago about the number of adjunct professors at like cambridge who are living in a park you know i mean people who they fall through the cracks and but they still have to show up to work there was a woman who was an adjunct professor somewhere back east at a college and she did a protest 
because the college was pay- paying adjunct so little. So she set up her tent on the steps of their library. And they didn't know what to do because they didn't want to just send the cops into arrest her and drag her away. She works there, but she's like, I can't afford housing here because I'm paid a few thousand bucks. Um, and so the, the amount, so like, again, there is no definition of middle class. Middle class is simply workers who have been convinced to, uh, to think of themselves as almost rich. That's it. You buy a big house that you can't afford. You buy a car that you can't pay off and you have nice clothes. Um, but it's all, uh, you know, a facade. You don't actually own any of those things. The bank owns them. And, and like I said, it's not about how much money you make because people who work with their hands can make more. It's not about your education because you can go to a very nice school and end up with a horrible student loan debt and be paying that off working in a job that wasn't even the one you studied to have. But you're considered middle class, but you're a freaking barista somewhere, an unhappy barista, someone who most of her money goes to paying off the debt. But she'd be considered middle class because she graduated college. It doesn't have a definition. And the vast majority, well, not I wouldn't say vast majority, but the majority of American working class people have been convinced they are something that doesn't exist, but whose definition benefits their boss. Yeah. And it's mostly the boss's boss. I mean, the, bo- the, yeah. the top bosses. The top bosses, not even their boss who's struggling with their job. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a big um, uh, sleight of hand, you know, in a country that doesn't make enough stuff anymore, that uh, found ways to stomp on unions to, and, and to celebrate obscene wealth. There is no way that any of these people, Elon Musk, you know, Bill Gates, none of them earned all of that money. Most of them started off as rich. Most of them inherited money. So they started off rich and they got richer by just the traditional capitalist way. Underpay the workers. You just don't pay the workers what you actually should pay them. You skim off the rest and you keep it. Or you give it to your, your stockholders who might have invested thousands of dollars, but they've made back millions of dollars. The rest of that money, the difference is the money that didn't get paid to the workers. If the workers are in this country. It's like they say, you know, if our uh, minimum wage had tracked along with uh, the cost of living, it would be up like 25 bucks or something by now. But it hasn't. But the cost of living has continued to go up and the GDP has continued to go up. Who has that extra money? Where is that unpaid extra money going? And then you change the channel and see that, you know, Jeff Bezos is going into space again. Well, all CEOs of these major corporations make so much money. The, the, The multiple between the average worker and their company and what they make has is gone up and up and up year after year for the last you know, 30 or 40 years. Yeah, one it's, of the things, I remember when Wells Fargo, it turned out how they were ripping people off by creating false accounts and all of that. Because criminal organization like most banks. And they were talking about how much money the CEO at Wells Fargo at the time, he was going to take a pay cut. Um, and eventually he, he uh, was fired. But uh, my opinion is that if you have somebody who runs a bank, they run a bank. They're a CEO of a bank. 
and they cannot manage to live on a million dollars a year, they're bad with money. They shouldn't be running a bank. Well, a lot of these people want to just make their families rich, too, for, for generations to come. Right. And that's what's called an aristocracy. Yeah. And that's one of those things, words that don't get used enough in the United States is that we've always kind of had an aristocracy. And now it's about making sure that your family is rich for generations to come. You're, that's just an aristocracy. That's part of what the War of Independence was supposed to be about um, undermining to a certain extent is being ruled by purely by an, uh, uh, a landed and inherited aristocracy. It wasn't about freeing the slaves or equality or really a revolution. It was just a war of independence from that aristocracy. And uh, now we just have, and, and then people will worship this. The average workers will go, oh man, this person's my hero, Elon Musk. And it's like, Elon Musk would drive over you okay. to get extra Skittles. Let me tell you about Elon, all right, Elon Musk. So my, my wife works for, worked for a company for many years called Palo Alto Products, and mm -hmm. they invented the um the tesla mm. uh with a guy named martin eberhardt who they worked with and they built they built the first teslas and then they formed the tesla company martin eberhardt was the main inventor and he is an inventor he's in he invented the first ebook he invented all mm. kinds of things i almost worked for him uh years ago when he had the ebook but he had to sell it to franklin anyway he was um, running Tesla for the first year or two, and they had those original cars. Do you remember? You sometimes mm -hmm. you still see them. Yeah. And Elon Musk came over from either PayPal or eBay. I can't remember. I think it was PayPal. Yeah, and um, I think he Martin is very he's very much an you know esoteric sort of like out there guy, and he maybe not the greatest leader, but Elon came in. It was very, you know, the strong CEO type. Mm -hmm. and, and he got the board to push Martin out, and they gave him some, a lot of money. And then Elon bought the right. This is what I love. He bought the right to say that he was a founder of the company the te mm. of Tesla Corporation. So when he when he walks around and acts like he invented the Tesla and that he founded the company, he's allowed to do that because he purchased mm. the right to be able to tell a lie. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I did not know that, but look it up. It's even in Wikipedia. Oh, I I believe you. But, because... but they don't say it that way. But but that's what no, happened. No. Um, yeah. Well, I was trying to tell someone the other day. They were like, "Well, you know, he he worked his way up," and I was like. No, I think his parents owned uh, emerald mines in yeah, South Africa or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like in another country. He, yeah. he comes from money. Yeah. You know, he, he hasn't made anything. He's bought things. He's bought the rights to things. You know, he's invested in things. But he's just a rich kid who is a con artist. Exactly. Um, but we are told that he's, you know, this great, great hero. And Trump is the perfect example yeah. of that i mean this is yeah. buffoonish he's, he's just on the continuum he's on the spectrum of these people and he came Rather at the than... right time where these people who were gullible enough to to believe all the things we just talked about voted for him and and, yeah. and worship him because they see him 
as the ultimate capitalist, the person who made it on his own. And they can do right. it too one day. You could do it too. And also I think that they, like I said, I think that there's a lot of things that he represents. There's, he has, he'll, he'll just say things, you know, that, and people appreciate that. Even when he says bad things about them, they feel like, well, at least he's being honest. Oh, that's just And he Trump. also implies things that they, that they feel like they know what he's thinking. Yes. He can be racist. He could be sexist. He could be, you know, homophobic and transphobic and a nationalist and all of that. And he, he can say enough coded things that people, that the, again, the white working class in the United States who are so terribly oppressed, but have attributed that oppression, not to capitalism, but to immigrants yeah. or, or, the immigrants or modern society or critical race theory and yeah, all whatever these other that things. is. Yeah, whatever that is. Oh, also known as history. Um, yeah, exactly. That, you can't tell it. It's it, critical. Critical race theory is like is a is a number of theories put together to teach in a way to teach history. Yeah, but in in, a, in an honest way, it's ridiculous. This whole thing. Yes, no one could. It, it's very it, complicated. It, what critical race theory is, and nobody actually even knows. Right. It was just a paper that somebody wrote yeah. about something about looking at things through a particular lens in colleges. Exactly. And, it, and it's simply become, um, you know, uh, a scapegoat for everything else. But what it really is about is, again, uh, if you have a mythological past, you know, it's almost like what the United States is going through now with its history of racism is like what the Catholic Church went through with the whole child raping thing. You know, you just deny it. You deny it and deny it and deny it and deny it and deny it. And anybody who is, um, who talks about it is excommunicated. They're outside of the family. They're trying to tear down everything. They hate God. And so that's where we're dealing with, with critical race theory. It's like, if you're saying that, then you must hate the United States. You're a traitor. You need to be stopped. Anything, and, and because the United States is perpetually under imminent existential threat, Anything that's done to save the United States is justified so they can shoot you. They can jail you on trumped up charges. They can do anything because you are threatening the very existence of the country by insisting on this heresy. Yeah. So, oh, my God. That's a lot of stuff. What are we going to do? Comedy. <laughs> that's what, see, you can see how every year when I'm writing a Mime Troop show, trying to figure out what to write, how yeah. to narrate, which, which thing this time. And why there are some people who say, well, every Mime Troop show is about the same. And it's like, no, they're very, very different, except when it comes to the, the, the nugget of the problem. That the, 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 the essential problem is normally going to be some kind of propaganda that is being perpetrated. The Great Con, which was at SF Playhouse, was co-produced by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. You know, all these people who are like, oh, you guys always do the same thing. And it's like, well, no, we do our park shows, we do our radio shows, and we do indoor shows periodically. Um, and it's in a, it was in a different style, but it was still ultimately what it was about was how propaganda, who does propaganda benefit? and how racism, sexism, regionalism, all of these things are aspects of propaganda and who writes your history. So, uh, 
you know, it's, I didn't even think about it at the time, but yes, it's a critical race play. Um, <laughs> we that, have such um, good propaganda in this country, though. I mean, it's yes. just, it's expert. Every country has it. Yeah. I was talking to someone recently. The person was very into Shakespeare. And we were talking about it. And I said, yeah, well, you know, all those kings in Shakespeare, uh, um, they're French. You know that, right? And they were like, oh, well, uh, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, they're French. The, the French ruled England for like this vast period of time, you know, uh, uh, until the Tudors were really established. They go, oh, you know, it's like, it's like the Plantagenets. It's a French word. The, the, they spoke French in the court. Most of those kings didn't even spend much time in England. Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, the, 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 the hero of, of Robin Hood, the guy who comes back at the end to reclaim England, he spent in his life about 18 months in England. He was born in France. He died in France, spent his life in France. Um, most of those kings did. In French, in, in Shakespearean history plays, whenever the new king is coming in, he always goes to France to raise an army. Because he's French. But, but so we have centuries of Shakespearean propaganda. They're great plays, but they're lies. Um, and people think that's history. And even this person who, was, who loved Shakespeare, read all the plays, thought they were great, but had never actually looked at the history of them. And so that's I how, never believed. I've never believed the history in Shakespeare. Right. It, <laughs> it's, it's so it's so screwed up. I remember when I was studying history at Cal, like that. And I was also a minor in English, and I was reading these Shakespeare plays, and it's like, wait a second, he just right? made that up. You just said this. That never <laughs> he happened. He made that shit up. I mean, that's not what happened. Right. Yeah. But. You know, um, it's like, well, I always have to tell people after I tell them the Shakespeare part and they're like, oh, and I go, yeah. And pretty much everything you know about the French Revolution was written by the English. And they're like, wait a minute, what? I'm like, go and any if you ever read a book about them, about the revolution that the English hated, it was probably written by the English. Right. Most of the books you've read on Napoleon were written by the English, you know, the Most French of the love history, Napoleon. Yeah, most of the history that you've read about black Americans were written by white Americans. The, most of the stuff written by, about the working class were not written by the working class. Some of them are, like Studs Terkel's work and different people, but you just have to consider the source. It doesn't mean that the source is necessarily actively lying, but they're seeing it through a particular lens. And the m more varied the lenses you look through and the more history you read uh, broadly, the more you could see what makes sense and what must not be true. Right. So that's interesting because with the Napoleon thing now, as an American, I learned Napoleonic history probably, as you just said, through books written by the English. Mm -hmm. And I have a certain perception of Napoleon as kind of being a whacked out like dictator person who took over other countries for no reason and stuff but then when i talked to my wife the french all like 100 percent love napoleon they right. have a different history of napoleon and he did incredible things for that country that guy was right. a he, genius he was, leader domestically yeah and and why the french revolution is like they're like oh the french he was out conquering all these places well the french revolution happened and and they were immediately attacked by all these other European countries that were ruled by kings. Now, Napoleon, and why did Napoleon become emperor? He was 
a hoping that the wars would end if they reestablished uh, uh, a monarchy. But also, once you're dictator, it's hard to retire. Um, well, yeah, so he had trouble he had, in that area. Yeah, he did <laughs> terrible things and things that I could thoroughly disagree with. But at the same time, the revolution is like, you know, they always talk about the reign of terror. Um, after the counter-revolutionaries came back to power, they killed like five times as many people in something called the white terror. You never hear about it. You only hear about Robespierre being terrible, but you never hear about the white terror and the people that came in and were just killing people in the streets. That, you know, and using the guillotine, they're like, oh, it's a revolutionary thing. No, they kept using it till the freaking 70s, I think. 70, um, 70 like 78 was the last one. Yeah. And there's even a video of it on YouTube. You can see yeah. the guy getting his head chopped off. <laughs> Side note, though, if you think about it, which way would you rather go? Head. Right. I'd rather go it's, with the guillotine. It's actually more humane. That's why they invented it. It was right. the most was, humane. It was more if, humane yeah. than getting because it could take like twenty minutes to die in the gas chamber. Oh, and and then the, yeah, and I hear they can screw up the injections really bad. People right, are in pain and they do, and, they and people move. are, and pe people who have for one reason or another something's gone bad, and they have and they have to try to undo it, and the yeah. people are screaming in pain because it hurts so much. Guillotine, your head's cut off. They're like, oh, you might live for another fifteen seconds or twenty minutes in torture. Yeah, but even if you live, you're not going to have any pain because your nervous system is completely right. cut off. Right. It, it's just that there's a finality to it. It's bloody, and also it's connected to the French Revolution. Right. Anyway, history. <laughs> it's a whole thing. All of these are history books. Um, I love history. Trying to find your way around that uh, that propaganda, and that was another part of the Great Con. It was very much about consider the source. Who do we? When we hear about Genghis Khan, who we're normally reading books written by people who feared him, hated him, or when he was redefined in the 17 and 1800s, because up till that point, he was still considered the great king of the past. At that point, the English were suddenly moving into Asia, and they had to redefine Asians as evil. And so evil, barbaric, and all of this stuff. Whereas Genghis Khan, not really not a barbarian. Uh, See the play. Okay. Um, well, maybe I'll, anyway, uh, I hope I can. I, if, I know it's not going to be here. I know. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah. This is great. Enjoy talking yeah, to you. Yeah, thanks. And I, and I hope you guys have a chance. Everybody has a chance to listen to Red Carol because it's also like everything we do at the Mime Troop, all the power to the peopleness we can with, you know, really countering what you think you know about. Yes. Lessons, History to Red and Carol. about society. Yeah, and it'll counter that. It'll be a, a counter to the uh, the happy Scrooge you might go see somewhere yeah, else. The story where he's just a happy guy. And also, like I said, us wanting this to be a tradition, a constant. Hopefully at some point we'll have enough money to actually do the production or with another theater company, which we're approaching companies now about next year. But also just the idea of having this be a tradition of this is a, it is a feel good story ultimately because you want the revolution to succeed. You want people, you do want people to change, but you want the society to change as well. And so instead of going to see, you know, the big only feel good version of Christmas Carol once a year, we'd like people to sit around with the family and listen to our, listen to a red Carol. Yeah. And it's so much fun to listen to radio plays. I, and you you guys do a great job. The production value is so high. Oh, thank uh, you. It's 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 very professional. I, I just love listening to it. 
Um, well, we, and know, I assume a... if you wrote it, there's still some humor in it and irony. Oh, yeah. And all, okay, because you're not going to ever write And there's songs. In... Daniel Savio is our musical director. Music is wonderful. I was listening to it earlier. Yeah, he's he, uh, you know, um, uh, found a bunch of songs that, that worked with the show and and uh, directed us in singing. Because at that point, we were all singing in different parts of the country because we were still in lockdown when we recorded it. And then... Um, Taylor Gonzalez is our sound engineer, worked with the director to go through and find the right sound effects to retime things. Because, you know, when you're recording things separately, you can't have the comic timing you need or the dramatic timing. So we had to go through and really put it together in a way that it tells the story we want to tell in the way we want to tell it. And in a way that is happening in the listener's mind, because that's what with radio, you're telling a story that's happening in somebody's brain. They pictured the sets and the costumes and the lighting effects and all of that. Um, yeah, so we're really happy with it. And that's why we decided to, um, we had a you know, collective meeting. We decided we just want to make this a yearly uh, release until we can do it in person. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody listen to it. It'll be, is it in your website starting when? Yeah, it'll be on our website, I think, starting the end of this week, like the okay. 26th or something. And then it'll start showing up on different radio stations around the country. Um, and it'll be running through the middle of January. And, you know, and if people uh, listen to it and like it and feel so moved. Yes. To make a donation to the San Francisco Mime Please Troop. Because do we do this stuff. We get paid, but the company does it for no charge to the audience. Yeah. And so, and since we don't take corporate money, we rely on uh, donors. We rely on people who want to help us get this working class message out as much as possible. So and if it, you listen to the show, feel free to visit the website and hey. toss whatever you would have paid to see Christmas Carol somewhere else. Give it to us. Yes, and and I and I can tell everybody who's listening to this that I've I've been uh, watching and listening to the Mime Troop for years, and uh, they do not take corporate money. They their productions are fantastic, and they they put on the kind of theater that a lot of people should be striving for. Not not mm -hmm. super expensive theater, but well acted, wonderful music. Uh, you know, original yeah, scripts say, I, dealing with I, the issues of the day, uh, and and something that I think that is a great model for uh, for other companies in the future. So, the show yeah. that I'm doing now, there are actors in it. They were like, "So tell us about the mantra. Do you guys get paid?" And it's like, "Yeah, we get paid." And and I, who writes the show? And it's like, "Well, I write a lot of them, but do we have other writers?" And I've got plays playing around the world, so I'm a you know, actually reputable playwright. And we've got actors who've done Broadway and television shows and films, you know, uh, uh, but it's the passion of the work and wanting yeah. to tell these particular stories to activate and, and uh, help educate a particular audience, which is what brings us all together. It's not like we're going to get rich off doing the mime truth, but it is about the, you know, our mission statement to reach the broadest possible audience and activate them politically and to entertain them yes <laughs> fantastic thank you michael okay thank you appreciate it once again i always enjoy talking to you you too right and uh go see 12th night sf playhouse until when do you know when it's closing uh, that also goes until the middle of january okay yeah sf playhouse is a great a great location to see a show yeah. very intimate theater mm -hmm. 
uh, although the stage is huge, it's just fantastic. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's there. a nice space. Yeah. Okay, Twelfth Night and a red red carol. carol. Okay, which you can listen to in the comfort of your own home. That's right. Which is as nice as you want it to be as a theater. <laughs> All right, take care. Okay, thanks right, a lot. You bet. Bye. Bye. Well, you stuck it out to the end, aren't you? Awesome. That was Michael Gene Sullivan. A lot of fun to talk with Michael once again. Thank you so much for sticking to the end. And if you like this podcast, please tell your friends. And if you don't like it, tell your enemies. <laughs> visit visit me at greenroomonair.com or rayrenati.com. Send me an email at greenroomonair at gmail.com to tell me how much you love me and maybe send me a Christmas gift or two. Some, I don't know, one of those Starbucks cards or something. Whatever you want. <laughs> All right, everybody. You take care of yourself. And as my grandmother used to say, watch out for the kooks. And until next time, I will see you on the boards. Good night, everybody. When you're weary, feeling.